All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. So, my friends, this is a very special se session because we are talking about two forms of, uh, I don't know, I guess we would call it Jewish therapy. It sounds kind of like what we're talking about. Huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is two forms of therapy based on, based on classic Torah concepts. Um, so I want to share with you the, the following two words. Well, two expressions. Number one is Musar. Number two is Chassidus. What's the difference between Musar and Chassidus? What do these things mean? Musar is a way of, a way of, um, care. it's a method for uh, personal change, character improvement that is effectuated through focusing on the negative, diagnosing the negative, pointing out how negative the negative is, in other words, how bad the negative thing is, and, uh, and trying to, like, through the negative energy, through negative inertia, trying to get uh, positive change from that negative space. So Musrs. Musr literally means, in Hebrew, rebuke or chastisement. I don't know if that's a word, but I think so. Right? Chastising someone or even oneself. It's not really about criticizing someone else. It's about a self-analysis, uh, understanding, exploring what's wrong, and then trying to achieve change. That's one methodology. The other methodology is Hasidus, which is what we study, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, which has a bit of a different approach. Now, in order to really understand the distinction between these two and what they do, I want to share with you the following story, which I wrote up in the email, but we're going to read it inside. All right, so here, please take and pass. Thank you. Please take and pass. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I will put this up on our screen as well. Give me just one moment, please. All right, here we go. Kabbalah Cafe Supplementary Text Chapter 3, The Purpose. Okay, here we go. I'll give you a little bit of background into this story, into the characters, and then we're going to jump right in. So here's what you need to know. Within the Chabad Hasidic movement, which is based on a Jewish mystical uh, approach and it's, Chabad actually stands for, uh, it's an acronym in Hebrew for three words, Chachma, Bina, and Dat, which are the three intellectual powers of the soul. If you recall, I always think of my chart, my ever, <laughs> the, the chart that I always print out for these occasions. So you have Chachma, Bina, and Dat, those are the three intellectual faculties. And the idea of Chabad is that what we think about affects how we feel, and how we feel affects how we behave. So if you want to drive behavior, it really all goes back to what we're thinking about in our heads. Our heads, what we're thinking about matters a lot. It's critical what's in our heads. So with that in mind, there, were, there have been, there were seven Chabad Rebbe's. These were like the, the big rabbis at the head of the Chabad movement. And the first was Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Liadi was the city that he lived in or that he was a rabbi in. His name was uh, Schneir Zaman. He's known as Rabbi Schneir Zaman, or he's also known as the Alter Rebbe. Alter means old, and Rebbe is rabbi. So in English, it's translated as the old rabbi, but trust me, in Yiddish, it's way nicer than the old rabbi. It means like the sagely, like the rabbi emeritus. Rabbi emeritus. Oh, 
Oh, very good. Good. So he's the founder of the Chabad movement. He was born in 1745, passed away in 1812. And, um, and that's the Alter Rebbe. Now, he, he had a, his grandson was named Menachem Mendel. He also became, he became the third Rebbe, and he is known as the Tzemach Tzedek. Why is he known as the Tzemach Tzedek? That is the title of a book that he wrote on Jewish law. And oftentimes, rabbis became known, well, people refer to them by the books that they authored. Right? Like, so, like in English, what we would say is, um, instead of Shakespeare, you might say, oh, the Hamlet. You would never say that. But <laughs> imagine if you did, that would be a similar thing. Oh, that's Tzemach Tzedek, because he wrote a book of halachic Jewish legal you know, work called Tzemach Tzedek. All of that to set up the following story. This story happens when the grandson is under 10 years old. So he's younger. Hey, good to see you. Welcome. Wow, very special guest. Welcome. Great to see you. Shavuot Tov. Ray, welcome. It is great to see you. A special... Tr- oh, good to see you guys. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, everybody. All right. Paul, you could sit here in the hot seat. I'm not saying you should. I'm saying you could. You totally could. Huh? <laughs> Too much pressure. If they, I always say, if you sit here, you have to answer all the hard questions. And the really hard ones, we, get, we give to Norm. That's, that's the way this system works. <laughs> all right, so we're, we're about to tell a story that happens with the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, and his grandson, the Tzema Tzedek. Um, we should also wish Ray a Mazel Tov. Can we wish you a Mazel Tov? I think we can, and we will, because Ray's granddaughter just got engaged to be married in Israel. So we're super excited. Ray, muchos nachos. <laughs> lots of nachas. <laughs> lots, of, lots of nachas. Okay. So here's the story. I'm gonna, we're going to read this inside. We're on this paper where it says the purpose. Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, and by the way, he wasn't a rabbi then. He was a kid. But he became a rabbi, so like, I don't know, might as well refer to him as a rabbi because that's how he's known. So Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, once asked his grandfather, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, hey, good to see you, the Alter Rabbi Ayyechidus. Now, Yechidus, I should probably translate this term also. Yechidus is like a personal audience with a rabbi or a, uh, you know, a, a, um, a respected rabbi where it's not just a meeting and a schmooze. It's really about getting life advice. A Yechidus is really like a meeting of souls where you, you get almost a path of divine service from you know, your leader, your mentor, your spiritual mentor, etc. Anyway, so he's meeting with his grandfather in a serious way. And he asks his grandfather the following question. He says, what is the purpose of Hasidus, Jewish mystical study? In other words, I know what it says, more or less. But why is it said? Why do we study it? What's the, what's the, what's the objective? What's the end game? We're studying Jewish mysticism. We study Kabbalah. But why? Why is it here? So you could say... Yes. Rabbi says that, like, he made a distinction between Kabbalah and the Hasidus. And I, I don't always, I'm not sure what that distinction is. Do you want to clarify? That's a longer question. There is a nuance between Kabbalah and Hasidus, and you're correct. 
And uh, the Rebbe has a work called On the Essence of Hasidus, which we're actually quoting today, where in a moment, the second paragraph here is quoted, the third paragraph is quoted from that, from that work, where he explains the nuanced difference. But for our conversation today, we're, we're putting them in the same category. He's, in truth, Kabbalah is the fourth level of Torah, and Chassidus is level five. But, but that's, the general, that's the general idea. Uh, uh, that's, that's the more specific idea. And generally, it's Jewish mystical study. So the Tzemach said that the grandson's asking the grandfather, what is the purpose of Jewish mystical study? We know what it says, roughly, but why is it said, or why do we study it? What's the objective? What's the aim? What's the end goal? Listen to the answer. Look what he says. The Alter Rebbe replied, the entire purpose of Hasidus is that one should transform the nature of their character traits, known in Hebrew as midot. In other words, why do we study Hasidus and what's it about? What's it for? It's about transformation of what? And look, but you have to look at the words to transform the nature of their character traits. The nature of their character traits. In the Hebrew, it is, if you know Hebrew, it's teva midosav. Teva midosav or midotav, depending on how you pronounce it. Right? The nature of one's character traits. That is the purpose of chesedus. The Rebbe explains, was the seventh in this line of, of rabbis, the Rebbe explains, our Rebbe explains, the following, this means, look at the third paragraph down, this means to change not only one's natural character, traits themselves, but also the very nature of one's character. In other words, there's two things that can, ha- two things that can be transformed. You can transform the natural character traits that you have, or you can transform the very nature of your character. Two different things, completely different things. We have to now understand what, what, what the difference is. What are we even saying here? But again, the difference is either we're transforming midot hativim, the natural character traits, or teva midotav, the nature of our character. Here's the difference. And we're going to read it inside in a moment. And it's going to get, we're, we're going to analyze this a lot. But let me give you a bit of a, a, bit of a quick intro into this. There's two options here. There's two forms of interchange that we're speaking of right now. Number one, to change your natural character traits, which means if you find yourself getting angry, becoming less angry. If you find yourself um, filled with jealousy or, or, or being jealous, it means being a little less jealous. Right? It's working on your character, on the character traits themselves. So identifying which character traits you don't like or which character traits you recognize are not so healthy. You know, think of, um, I don't know, pick your favorite vice and just think of, you know, what that looks like in a negative space and think about what that would mean to change, to transform into something positive. So for example, and we've talked about this so many times, you know, every healthy characteristic, mida which is the singular of midot, every healthy character trait has an unhealthy version. So love can manifest in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way. Gvura, which is restraint, can be healthy or unhealthy. 
right? Um, uh, teferet, which is compassion. There can be healthy compassion and unhealthy compassion. Everything can manifest in two different ways. So the first, and I would say the more basic level of interchange is to identify. What is, let me, for, <laughs> uh, the midah for the week, the character trait for the week. Which character trait do I recognize within myself that I wish to change? And then I'll work on it. How am I going to work on it? Well, number one, you have to first identify that it's a problem or that it's not exactly where you want it to be. So if I find myself, again, if I find myself, um, you know, experiencing something or manifesting something that's in a less than healthy way, then I can identify, okay, this is what's going on. This is what I feel. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to react like this. You know, it's not. So let me work on myself inside. Let me work on my inner character to try to improve myself. And that is working on or working to change our midot hativim, our natural character traits. So by nature, you know, everyone's got a different nature. By nature, um, by nature, some people are. Uh, um, uh, uh, by nature, some people are more chesed oriented, more gvura oriented, and then within within the various um, within the various mido, within the various character traits, some people have it manifest in a more healthy way. Some people have it manifest in maybe a more negative way. By nature, nature, nurture. We're not going to get into that discussion. However, it is. It might just be showing up in a negative way. So step one, or one, one area of work, of inner work, is to change midot hativim, the natural character traits, to become less angry, less jealous, less judgmental, less this, less that, or the other, more kind, more loving, more generous, more forgiving, etc. That is one level. How, how do you get there? There are many different ways to get there. Many different paths, including what I mentioned before, the word I mentioned before, that's why I wanted to introduce it before, which is Musar. What is Musar? Musar is, here's what's wrong, here's why this shows up in an ugly way, here's what it looks like when we show up in an angry way, it hurts others, it's not good, this is the damage it causes, let's work on this. So you're being motivated by negativity, being motivated by, let's say, the fallout from the, neg- the, the negative emotion and trying to work on it. I'm not trying to oversimplify the process of interchange, but it's being stirred by um, analysis into the negativity and, 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 and how that is causing damage and havoc within and without, etc. So that's one path. And, that, and, and, and utilizing the tools of Musa, utilizing those tools, we can work on ourselves over the years, you know, slowly, slowly but surely to work on ourselves to become more of a mensch. And that is, that is eminently achievable. But if you notice, the clarification here in paragraph 3 is that that's not what Chassidus is about. Chassidus is not about only, not only about changing one's natural character traits themselves, which means to be less angry, less jealous, less judgmental, less this, less that, less, less the other. That's not the only purpose of Chassidus. That's not even the main purpose. What is the main purpose of Jewish mystical study? If you look back inside, to change the very nature of one's character. Not the character traits, but the nature of our character. The very, you know, you can, you can work on the individual item, or you can work on the, the general, like the bigger picture. More than just the bigger picture, it's the core of what's going on. I'll give you a, a relationship example. Let's, let's talk about a relationship example. This comes up when we talk about the idea of teshuva. What is teshuva? Teshuva means repentance, or um, it's usually translated as repentance. Shuvah literally means pivoting or returning 
right? Turning around. Tshuva is a big theme as we get ready. You know, I guess uh, we, all, we all know, right? High holidays are approaching, right? It's almost the month of El. Today is the 19th day of the month of Av, Menachem Av. It means 11 days away from El. And El is 30 days away from Rosh Hashanah. And then we have 10 days later, Yom Kippur. I'm giving you a lot of days here. I know, I'm giving you a lot of numbers. <laughs> but the point is that, that it's this time of year that we think about, you know, we think about ourselves and we think about self-improvement and things, areas that we can, we can be better at, etc. But here is what I want to share with you. When it comes to, teshu, to, to Teshuvah, there's two different ways of approaching it. You can, you can focus on the details or you can focus on the core from which the details come. So again, well, let's just talk about a, a practical relationship example. So let's say someone in a relationship, in a very close relationship, does something or says something, whatever, shows up in a way that is hurtful to the other person, right? They said something that wasn't so kind or they said, or they did something that wasn't so kind or whatever it is. So now, and then at, at, at some later point, whether right away or a little bit later, the person that made the affront, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, that, that, that offended the other person, the other party that they love, um, wants to apologize. So how do you apologize, right? This is not a, this is a rhetorical question. This is not, right? How does one apologize? So there's two ways of apologizing. You could say, I'm sorry for doing X, Y, and Z. I'm sorry that I said this, didn't say that, I did this, or I didn't do that. You can apologize for the, for the individual item. And either the other person will accept the apology, or you know, either they'll with open arms accept the apology, or they'll you know, begrudgingly accept the apology, or maybe they're not going to accept the apology. Whatever. Depends on the situation, right? But that's one approach. You focus on what happened. And you say, I'm sorry for this thing that I did or that I said, I didn't do, didn't say. Then there's another way. The other way is to say, to, 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 to realize within oneself that it's not, the problem here is not that I said or did something. The problem is where that's coming from. Where is that coming from? Why, how is it possible that I could have said or done that? In other words, why is it so clear to me now that that wasn't okay, but in the moment that happened? How's that possible? You know, somebody, sometimes we say, I'm so sorry, that wasn't me. Ever hear people say that? I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. That wasn't me. Really? Because we have the videotape. <laughs> that really was you. Legit was you. What does it, what it mean it wasn't you? It means the person is, is in a space right now where they're thinking back to what they said or did, and they're like, I can't believe I said or did that. Like, I don't know what came over me. I don't know what came through me. Like, that's not even me. Which means that they're realizing that, so my question is, so then how did that happen? If that's so not you, how did it happen? Sure. Could be. But, what it means is, if we're being more reactive than analytical, or for whatever reason it is, I don't know if that covers all scenarios, but whatever the reason is, it kind of boils down to a deeper, a deeper idea. In other words, we can focus on the individual action or inaction, or we can, we can recognize that there's a larger implication here, and that is that I am not 
as considerate of you, or I'm not, I'm not in that, I'm not in that conscious state of connection with you as I should, as much as I should be. If I was, if I was consciously aware of you and thinking about you and, and, and aware of my love and appreciation, respect for you, if I was in that space of thinking about that, then I wouldn't have done or said this thing. It wouldn't have happened. So I can apologize for the words that I said, but the real issue is, the real issue is, why was I not feeling you in that moment? Why was I not sensitive to you in that moment? So we can focus on the individual item or on the larger implications. Does that make sense? Now, an apology that comes... Yeah. It's the chicken or the egg, in my opinion. Which came first? Right. Oh, right. But I th- right. So in this case, I'm suggesting that, that when we... That when we... Um, in the moment, it's the reason why we might say or do something, right, is be- that, that we later on are like, what was I thinking? What was it? Is because in that moment, we're not thinking about the other. We're not... When I say thinking... We're not feeling the other. We're not close with the other in that moment. So we're able to do, we're, somehow we're able to do something that is antithetical to how we really feel because we're not really feeling how we really feel, which means that at the core of the, the, core of the problem is I wasn't aware of you in this moment. I wasn't really feeling you. In other words, let's talk about our relationship with God. Safer space. I'm kidding. Let's talk about a relationship with God, right? So, so we can say, I'm sorry, I did this. We, you know, on Yom Kippur, we stand and we, we, we tap our chest. I'll hate this for this sin, for that sin, for this indiscretion, for that. And we, we enumerate verbally. We confess for all of these things that we might have done or might not have done throughout the year, all these indiscretions. The question is, you know, is that what it's about? Just a laundry list of, of, of wrongs that we may have committed? It's more than that. You know, it's not about, it's not about the, the list of things. It's about what drives those things. What drives those things is that we were thinking about ourselves. We weren't thinking about the other, whether it's the other human or the other in our divine relationship, which is God. We're not thinking about the other in that moment. When I say thinking, I don't mean, it's not that we don't know that the other one exists, but we're not, in this moment, we're not caring about the other. Let's just call it spade a spade. We're not really thinking about them in the sense of caring and being compassionate and being kind and being... And, 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 and respecting them in this moment. Now, again, this is not in any way to, 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 to bring ourselves to a, a place of, of despondency and despair and self-loathing and, and, and hating on ourselves for, for this type of stuff. The point is just recognizing that the shift is not in the individual item, the individual behavior. It's more of a, uh, it's more of a, um, a deeper sensitivity and appreciation and respect for the other that, that, that needs to be worked on. If somebody says, right, I apologize for, I don't know, what would it be? I apologize for not, whatever it is, not X, Y, and Z when you ask me to X, Y, and Z. I apologize for that. That's one type of apology. But imagine someone says, I apologize for not being sensitive to how you feel and not putting your needs not, not prioritizing your needs and not really caring about how you feel. And I, that's, a different, that's a different level of apology. And that means that the person really gets it. You ever hear when somebody says, I'm sorry, uh, the apology is, I'm sorry you were offended by what I said? You ever hear that one? Oh, yeah. That one, that one always gets trotted out. Like, I'm so, I'm so sorry that you were offended by what I wrote. And the, what's crazy about that 
What's crazy is... It's your fault. No, what's crazy about that is that the person really means that. No, they really mean it. It's like, I, I'm so sorry that you were offended. And they, they're like, sincerely, what's wrong with that apology? That's a real apology. I'm really, I'm really sorry that you were offended. Isn't that sensitive? Maybe, maybe not. A real apology is, I'm sorry that I wasn't sensitive to your feelings. I'm sorry that I wasn't attentive to how you feel. I'm sorry that I was thinking about myself and I wasn't thinking about you. That's an apology. Apology is not shifting the blame on the other. I'm sorry. Even putting it on something. Sorry I didn't take out the garbage. I don't know why. That's a, it's not even, not even a, when does that ever... Blow up, I don't know. Huh? Yeah, but that's never a point. Whatever. This is, I'm just thinking like what? Like I'm, yeah, exactly. Yes. So this is predicated that you are in a healthy relationship making yes. this kind of apology. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And I would say, and I would, let me add on to that. I would say the key to this is a healthy relationship with oneself. In other words, if I'm in a healthy relationship with myself, then, I, then I'm not going to be... I'm not positing that anyone is ever going to be perfect because we are not perfect human beings by, by, by design. God did not create us perfect. And that's not a flaw with God. That is for us to work on ourselves and grow to give us something to do. <laughs> right? If God, God created perfect beings. They're called angels. He kept on going until it created us and says, now let's see, let's see what happens. This is going to be interesting. God can create perfection. Heaven and angels and souls above. It's great. It's beautiful. God created us. So, so our imperfection, this is a very important thing. Our imperfection. See, I think part of the, part of the reason why sometimes we don't want to be self-aware of imperfection is because of the implication. That means I'm a terrible, or that means I'm a bad person. What does it say about me? But if we can recognize that our imperfection is not something to feel guilty about or ashamed about. It's something to recognize as a truth of our creation. God created us that. So, which means I don't need to have baggage, emotional baggage with the imperfection. What I need to do is work on it. it that doesn't let me off the hook from working on it. But I don't need to carry the baggage and the shame to not look within and not, uh, not identify it, not name it, so that I don't feel bad about it. It's not about feeling bad. It's about recognizing that I'm not perfect. And, and, and part of that imperfection is that sometimes my ego will get in the way of my relationship with, the, with, with those and, and the things that I love, including God. By the way, a great acronym for ego is edging God out. I love that one because isn't that at the core what ego is? Ego is, right, I, look at me. I create, look at what I've done. Look at what I've created. It's all about me. And, and the more it's about me, the more we push away God to the fringes, right? Look at me, like at the, the brighter our star shines, as it were. The danger is that we can sometimes forget about where everything's coming from. Oh, and that's also in interpersonal relationships. The more I'm thinking about me, the less I'm thinking about someone else. The Talmud tells an amazing story. I actually wrote it in my book on inclusion. Um, it's in there in the context of inclusion. 
but it's a powerful story on many levels. And some of you, I think, are, are, are familiar with the story, but I'll share it now. Because I, I feel like it fits in context. The Talmud says that there was a rabbi. And the Talmud says the name of the rabbi. And it says that he was on his way from his teacher's house. And I think it even says the name of the teacher. And it said he was ride, he's riding on a horse or a donkey. I don't know. He's riding on some animal. And he's, he's in a very um, positive mood. And he's traveling from his teacher's home back to his, back to his home. And by his, where, he, where he lives in his city. I guess his teacher lived in another town. And he's headed out. To, to back home to his town. And he meets someone uh, as he's going, someone else is coming, and he, he sees this person, this person sees him, and says, Shalom Aleichem, welcome, Rabbi. Good to see you, Rabbi. And the Rabbi says to this man, he says, how ugly are you? Are all the people in your town this ugly? That's what he says. <laughs> the Talmud tells the story. And the man replies to the rabbi and he says, I don't know, because again, the question, there was a question here. The question was, are all the people in your town as ugly as you are? He says, I don't know, but go to the craftsman who made me and say how ugly is the creature that you created. And of course, he was referring to God. It's like, oh, you think, I'm up? Okay. Take your complaints, right? So go tell God how, how ugly is. So immediately the Talmud says he realized that he had uh, said something that was not, not cool to say. And he asked this man for forgiveness. And the man said, no, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman who made me and tell him how ugly is the creature that you created. I'm not going to forgive you. You have to go to the craftsman. And he went behind him. He, this man was walking. And he went, the rabbi walked behind him. I guess he got off his horse, maybe his high horse, I don't know. He got off his, he got off his horse, he alighted, is that the right word? He alighted mm-hmm. from his steed, is that, I don't even know what I'm saying. Right, so he got off the animal and he walked behind the other guy, asking for forgiveness until he got to this guy's town. And when the guy got to his town and the people saw him walking and the rabbi was behind him, they said, oh, rabbi, you visited our town. And he says to the people, this, this rabbi, this, <laughs> I don't know if he told everyone what he said, but he said something like, if it's like this rabbi, may there be no, if you go, this is a rabbi, may there be no one, you know, no rabbis like this rabbi. And he apologized and apologized. And the end of the story is, that the man forgave him, he made him promise that he'll never say it again, or some, whatever it is. He made him. There's, there's a lot of conversation as to what. So, the end of the story is he forgave him and whatever it was. And the rabbi never said that again. There's a lot of questions as to how the rabbi could have said that in the first place. It's a, it's a wild story, it's a strange story. It, it's, there's a, and there's a, a lot of different commentaries, some with some mystical commentaries and whatever. But here's what I want to share with you. One commentary that, I, that, I, that, that really, um, I think, is powerful. When we're reading the Talmudic story, when we're reading the story in the Talmud, um, the, we know a lot of information about the rabbi. We know what his name is. We know what he was doing. We know where he was coming from. We know where he was going. We know all this information about him. And what about the other guy? All we know is that he's ugly. Or, sorry, 
We know that the rabbi calls him ugly. That's all we know about him. We don't know anything. We don't know where he's coming from. We don't know where he's going. We don't know what his name is. We don't know anything about him. And there's a beautiful commentary that says, but isn't that how we can say that in the first place? Let me explain. We have a story in our own heads, who we are and where we're coming from and where we're going and we're so important. I just came from an important meeting and I'm going to another important place. I have all this stuff going on and this other person is in my way. How is it that we can ever treat someone without the proper respect? It's because we're so obsessed with our own story that we forget about that we're talking to another human being. You ever at an airport when they announce delays in flights and people rage at the person behind the counter as if they had, have anything to do with this? They have nothing to do with this. This is their job to handle and manage you know, stuff. And people are shouting, you lost my bag, you, lost my, you booked me on the wrong flight, or I don't have a flight, and, and, and I'm thinking, it's not me, I don't wanna make this about me. And, and, and when we think about this, it's kinda of like, okay, yes, you have a very important story. Because you have a 5 a.m. meeting you know, in L.A. and you need to fly the red, I don't even know if the red eye works to L.A. Does the red eye work to L.A.? Yeah. yeah. To, LA. to L.A. or from L.A.? From, from LA. L.A.? All right, so you're in L.A. You have a, an 8 a.m., 9 a.m. meeting in Atlanta. You're taking the red eye. It's the only way you can get here. The red eye. And it's a really important meeting. And now you're going to lose the meeting. And so you're so upset, you're going to take it out of the person in front of you. Isn't that the same story that the Talmud shares? Here's a guy. We don't know. I mean, I guess he should have been in a good mood. I don't know. What I can't, it doesn't exactly explain the story in the Talmud. But the point is, when, when your story is so obvious and so clear, and that's the only story that matters, it's almost like the Talmud is taking us into the psychology, the psychology of indiscretion. Where does indiscretion come from? It comes from a space where you are fully aware and ever-present with your story and completely unaware and not thinking about, not caring about the other person's story. This is a fellow human being you're speaking to. It's like, like, speak with dignity, speak with respect. And so, again, I just want to circle back to my point here. My point here is that there's a way in apologizing, there's a way, in, uh, there's a way to apologize for the specific thing that was done or said that wasn't so kosher, as it were. Or there's a way of recognizing that there's a deeper thing at play and there's a, there, there, there's, there's a, there, there's a, um, there was a deeper lack of, 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 of um, what's the word I'm looking for? A deeper lack of recognition or sensitivity to the other where this is coming from. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not, yeah. So, to get to the higher level, the one way to get there is, how do you get there? And I think the way to get there is to do the, the lesser things first. Sure, sure. Definitely step one is to apologize for the thing itself. Absolutely. But when you think about shuva, the word shuva means to turn around, to pivot. And it's really about, instead of looking at ourselves, it's really looking at the other. Again, whether that's in a human relationship or in our divine relationship, it means thinking a little less about ourselves and more about the other. And not thinking about the other in the context of ourselves, which is really difficult. 
Because a lot of the times the way we look at someone is completely through the lens of how we're looking at ourselves. And so we're trying, we're apologizing to make ourselves feel better. Whereas, and we all, we've, all, I, I think, I mean, hopefully not, but I, I think many of us, if not all of us, have been on the receiving end of an apology at some point in our lives that didn't feel genuine. And if we really think about what didn't feel genuine about the apology, what I would bet, what I would bet is, uh, venture against to say is that the apology sounded like they were thinking more about themselves than us. It's like, oh, it's like even when the apology is driven by consequence, it's like, oh, are you really sorry or are you sorry that there's a consequence, right? And yes, the consequence can, can open up eyes to see the wrong, but oftentimes it's still stuck in the space of consequence, you know, that, that it's still about oneself. A real apology, what makes a real apology real? And by the way, the reason why I'm saying this is that I am starting to ghostwrite apologies for celebrities. This is a new, kidding. Wow, this was like, I, you know, I was waiting for someone to break and recognize that I was kidding. But anyway, the, it, it's like what makes an apology, you know, yeah, never, no, that's, I don't even know. What, but anyway, no, what makes an apology real as opposed to hollow is to really say I'm owning that I was not thinking about you, I was not thinking about the other. I was not. I was in a space that of you know self, whatever, and and not thinking about the other. So all of this to say is that we can work also within ourselves. So forget about, forget about. Let's put the specific area of focus away from apology to different ways of tshuva, tshuva on the detail, or tshuva in the overall sense of of awareness of the other. Let's put that aside for a moment, and. Um, Yes. Um, so I've been studying to see this Tanya for 15 years. Nice. In Kippur, I get to shoot the whole day. Yeah. Um, you know, there are still aspects of my nature that are not positive. You're um, saying you're not perfect yet? Yeah. What? Yeah. What are you doing wrong? I'm kidding. <laughs> my question is a practical one, which you might be coming on to, which is, you know, I'm not saying it's going to be Christmas every day, but at least every week. Um, Right now. Um, what you're discussing is is very relevant, but how do you um, enact those changes that they're sufficiently profound? Um, because obviously I'm very conscious of the intellectual soul, the animal soul, I'm, I'm very conscious of that, but how do I make the changes? Why, why am I asked the question, or I'm asking the question myself, why have those changes not come in those? The short answer is, great question. So for those online, I don't know if you guys could hear. The question is, if I've been studying for a while and working for a while on myself, why is it that sometimes the change doesn't seem to stick? Or why is it that there still seems to be areas that need change? And I think the answer is, my understanding of Tanya and other, other you know, mystical texts is that that is going to be the reality of our condition in this Life in this world, in other words, with a physical body, de- contending with an animal soul or a natural soul, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but contending with all of that, it's just going to be our fate is to be a warrior. In other words, there are tzaddikim. We talked about this, you know, in, in, in other contexts. A tzaddik is someone who no longer is fighting an inner battle. But a tzaddik is super rare and super infrequent, few and far, really few and far between. Um, most people, when I say most, I mean, I don't mean like 
you know, uh, you know, six out of ten. I mean, like ninety nine point nine 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 nine. Like without, like aside for a handful of people, perhaps most of us, all of us, essentially, you know, are 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 strugglers. We're in the language of Tanya, as you know, we're wrestlers. He talks about two wrestlers, right? Um, I think it's Jake Paul and I'm kidding. I don't know if you guys follow this up. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so it's two it's like two wrestlers, boxers in a ring, cage match. And there's always going to be an opponent as long as we're here that if there wasn't an opponent then I mean then we would be at Sadik and then okay, but we're not destined to be at Sadik. God in Tanya he says uh, Dr. Rebbe writes in Tanya is, again as you know that God has two forms <laughs> of pleasure. God derives pleasure from tzaddikim and pleasure from perfection and pleasure from combat, from struggle, from working on ourselves. So if the question is, like, I'm working on myself, how come it's not done? Okay, it means you still got time. <laughs> In other words, it's still, it's still, we're still here and we're still struggling. We're still on that, we're still in, the, in that space. It's like he likens it to two types of food, sweet food and spicy food. Sweet food is easy on the palate. It's like a tzaddik. It's like easy, simple, not simple. It's like easy. It's un, there's no opposition. Spicy food, oof. You eat it, challenges you. You ever see that show? Um, it's like where they do an interview and they, they eat stuff with hot sauce. It's a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic no. show. Oh, it's great. I want to do a Jewish version of that. It's so funny. It's called, um, what's it called? Like hot ones or something. I don't know. You basically two guys, two two people. The interviewer is a guy, and then and then uh, people are being interviewed. And they just go progressively hotter, hot wings. Like, but really, really hot. And as the as the as the wings get hotter, so the questions get a little bit more absurd. <laughs> and it just it just you know, hilarity <laughs> hilarity ensues. I don't even know why I'm talking about this. But anyway, the point is that the. Oh, spicy food. Sweet. Spicy food is challenging. But there's, a, but there's a pleasure in the challenge. There's a pleasure in the challenge. Not that God wants to see us struggle and fail. On the contrary, God wants to see us struggle and achieve. Maybe, but not necessarily to clear it all out. But at the same time, we can achieve victories, small victories. It's kind of like climbing a mountain where you struggle, 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 and then you reach, you reach a certain base. And then you keep on struggling, and then you reach another base. Are we ever going to reach the top? I don't know. We, may, we don't necessarily have to reach the top. That's not necessarily the purpose of our being. Yeah, for sure we're trying. Yeah, but the point is in the energy itself. It's like the difference between a treadmill and, I don't know, like the two forms of running. Either you're running to get somewhere or you're running to get stronger. right? So you may not be seeing that I'm not at point B yet, but we're, we're, we're working really hard on ourselves. And because of that, we're becoming we're becoming stronger, and we're, we're and we're working to improve self. Okay, so now I want to jump into the second part of this. Take a look at changing. Question. Yeah, it's, it's, sure. It's a sticky question. If you look at the author Rabbi's statement about transforming nature and her character traits, yeah, it's going to be a sticky question. How does one deal with gender gender identity? I don't know that that's what this is. This is more talking about the 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 the, the midot. I don't know how that would fit into here, so I, I, I don't, I, I, that, I can't comment on, on how that, that would, you know, 
interface. This is this is talking about the uh, our nature. This is not about like the our character traits. Now let's take a look at the second half of this first page. I'm going to put it back on the screen, and we are going to jump into where it says changing your nature. This is a powerful idea. All right, let's read it together. Um, there are three basic souls within each of us. By the way, this is a very good primer also in general, because usually we talk about two souls, godly soul and animal soul, or natural soul. And here he talks about three souls. The author talks about three souls, which is accurate according to Kabbalah. Again, usually it's just we talk about two souls, but there are three souls. There are three basic souls within each of us. The godly soul, the intellectual soul, and the natural soul, which is also called the animal soul. It's the same name, same soul, two different names. Each of these three souls contains a full complement of both rational and emotional faculties in accordance with its nature. Okay? So it's got the full suite of, of personality. The godly soul has ideas and feelings. The intellectual soul has ideas and feelings. The natural soul, animal soul, has ideas and feelings. Let's continue. The natural soul, as I mentioned before, is called the animal soul. Why is it called the animal soul? For all its desires are directed toward materialistic and animalistic ends, including survival, which is not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. It's, a, it's, it's, it's about existing. It's about eating. It's about you know, um, a marking one's space in this world, but it's, about, it's more of an ego type of, uh, of, of experience. That's the natural soul. Now, the rational part of the animal soul engages in rationalizing actions according to its own understanding and is concerned with self-preservation and self-justification. So again, we have this animal soul or natural soul, and it has a rational part and an emotional part. What is the rational part? The rational part is the self-justifying part of the animal soul. It's like, I deserve this, or they deserve this, or it's only once, or no one else is going to know, right? All the stories we tell ourselves about why this is okay. So that's the rationalization of the animal soul. Now let's get to the, let's get to the other part. The emotional part of the animal soul is the evil inclination, the eight Sahara. So the emotional part is the part that's drawing us into negativity. It's I would refer to it as the instinctive or instinctual part of self. It's the instinct that says, oh, this looks good, I want it. This, this feels good, let's have it. Right? That, part, that instinct is the emotional part of the animal soul. And since it's the animal soul, its instinct is animalistic, which means that it's lower, it's base, it is, it's, it's, it's physical, it's hedonistic, it's, it's got that, it's... it's um, you know, it's, it's the physical, emotional drive and desire for, for something pleasurable for its own sake and not for any higher purpose, etc. And the, rash, the, the intellectual part or the rational part of the animal soul is the part that justifies the behavior and says, oh, this is not animalistic behavior. This is good behavior. It's the part that justifies. By the way, which, which is worse for ranking? Which is worse, the emotional part or the rational part? I don't know, but probably the rational part, because without the, rationalize, the rationalizing part, then we wouldn't allow ourselves to do it. There's an interesting study that was done. I remember reading about it a few years ago. You know when you're driving and there's a big sign that says your speed? Studies show that people slow down big time when, when, when you see your speed. Simple question. Super simple question. If you want to know your speed, it's right there. 
on your own little display. It's always there. But you don't slow down for that one. Why do you slow down for that one? Interesting question. Huh? No, but let's say no one's around. Let's say no one's around. It's, now, all these are good theories, but I, the study that I read posited, I think there was some like, data that like, illustrated this, demonstrated this. I think the study that I read says something to the effect of, you know, as long as it's in your own space, you can rationalize it. Like, uh, you can overlook it. But when it's like there, when it's out there, even if no one else is seeing it, but it's out there, it suddenly feels like, oh, wait, I can no longer pretend that it's not there, right? It's, it's there. Rationalization means I'm pretending something. I'm telling myself a story to minimize the truth. That's what a rationalization is. Or what's a rationalization? It's a story that we spin in our own heads to minimize the, the reality right in front of us. To justify, exactly. And to minimize, to justify. And so when you see it, it's really hard to minimize that. Because that's objective third-party radar gun. I mean, that's like, that's, it's, 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 it's objective. Your own speedometer, yeah, it doesn't know. It's my car, whatever. Come on, I know this thing. Like, what? But if it's out there, it feels like it's harder to justify. But if you to go fast enough, all it says is slow down. <laughs> oh, like, is that? Well, I don't think I've ever yeah, done yeah, it. Really? Over certain oh, that's impressive. Then, <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not as embarrassing. Just slow. That's like mom nagging. Yeah, whatever. I saw. So on my. Like so, that's actually hilarious. Right? Yeah, three digits. Oh, yeah. At that point, it's like know. slow down, yeah, please. I, um, I will say that this, I think it was this morning. I was pulling out of my street, and like um, Northland is the other street nearby, and there was a car, like kind of like a sports car thing, that was having a fun Sunday morning <laughs> race down. I was like with the full, like the, the engine. All right, back to the story. Uh, other side of the page. Other side of the page. This is where it gets really interesting. In other words, all right, let's continue inside. In other words, the emotional part of the animal soul is the inclination to do evil while the rational part of the animal soul is the means of justifying the act. So there's the drive to do it, and then there's the cover-up. Right, the simultaneous cover-up. It's not so bad because... And if I can't see it, no one else can. It's kind of like that. Until one has the appropriate tools to correct the inclinations of the animal soul, one must first break one's natural desires. Which means, you just tell yourself no. You're not working on yourself. You're not healing what's going on inside. You're just breaking your natural desires. What that means is, again, simply, if I feel it, I tell myself I'm going to do the opposite of, of, of what I want to do in this moment. In other words, if I feel it, I know to deny it. If I feel it, I'm going to deny it. It's called breaking. In, in, in Aramaic or in Kabbalah, we call that eskafia. Eskafia means breaking. I feel it. I feel the drive come up. I say no. Remember, the first, I've told this story before. The first time I was introduced to this concept, I was 13 years old. This mystical concept. I was 13 years old in New Jersey, where my son Shalom is right now in, in uh, our summer program. YSP, Yeshiva Summer Program. And it was after the fast, maybe a fast day. It was either the 17th of Tammuz 
or the ninth of Av, fast we just had in the last month or so. And um, I remember somebody saying, when the fast is over, don't break it right away. Wait five minutes. Just, you feel the desire, you feel excited about the food? Just be in control. Not you have to, but consider that. Just escafia. Breaking your, I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> anyway, uh, by the way, this is not a fasting advice. You do it however, <laughs> follow your body. But this is just a thing. To, and that's not the only um, implication or the only area of that. But okay, but let's continue. So until one has the proper tools, so, you have, so the only way is to break your natural desires. But true divine service, however, is not breaking but fixing, mending, known as tikkun, fixing. And one begins the service of mending with the intellectual soul. Remember, there are three souls, godly soul, intellectual soul, animal soul. You fix the animal soul, you can break the animal soul, or you can you know, force it into certain spaces on occasion, but to fix it requires the intellectual soul, that middle soul. The tool to achieve this is the study of chassidus, Jewish mysticism, which includes the contemplation of those ideas which are in consonance with one's level of understanding and of material which also can be understood by and is able to inspire the heart. So in other words, it's through studying the things that our mind can wrap its head around. If things that can inspire our heart, that's what makes inroads within working on that base animal soul that has all of these um, instinctive, instinctual, not always healthy desires. Let's continue inside. Both the godly soul and the intellectual soul, this is where it gets crazy. And it's so deep, these ideas, and I'm hoping it's going to come through. I'm going to do my best to convey it. Both the godly soul and the intellectual soul have emotional attributes or character traits. Listen to this. The intellectual soul is naturally drawn to that which is below it. Again, intellect, although we think of intellect as something that like soars higher, but human intellect is usually trained to the natural world, to things around us, which means it's, 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 it's focused on the here and now. Even if somebody is a philosopher and thinking about you know, philosophical ideas, but it's usually grounded in something tangible at least somewhat. Let's continue. That's the intellectual soul. What about the godly soul? The godly soul, he says, is naturally drawn to that which is above it. So the intellectual soul is, is trending downward, whereas the godly soul is always trending upward. Let's continue. To transform. Remember we said before you can work on your, transforming your character traits or you can transform the nature of your character. So he says to transform the nature of one's character one is to transform the character of both of these souls, i.e. both the intellectual soul and the godly soul. There's a lot of words here and a lot of ideas. And I'm, I'm hoping this, again, I'm hoping this comes out clearly. We said before that the grandson asked the grandfather, what is the purpose of Jewish mystical study? And the grandfather said, it's to change the nature of one's character. And then we said, what does that mean? That does not mean merely or simply to change your natural character traits. Be less judgy, be less angry, be less envious. That's not the only meaning of that. What it means is not just changing your natural character traits, but changing the very nature of your character. And he's now defining what that means. The nature of your character means both for the intellectual soul and the godly soul. And here he spells it out for us. Thus, when that transformation happens, here's what it looks like. The intellectual soul should recognize that performance of a mitzvah should be because it is 
God's commandment and not because it is rationally acceptable. Consequently, one transcends the confines of reason in pursuit of this. In other words, one recognizes that when one does a mitzvah, a mitzvah, a divine commandment, is not just valuable because I understand it, because it makes sense to me. Oh, I understand why you know, this mitzvah is positive, beneficial to me or to others. It's primarily because that's how the, that's how the intellectual soul usually operates. We want to make sense of things. We want to rationalize things to bring it down into something real and tangible and meaningful. So here's a mitzvah. Here's a biblical commandment. Here's what God says to do. Great. Let me make sense of that so that I understand it. That's taking a mitzvah and bring it down to our understanding, which is great, but that's not transforming the intellectual soul. To transform the very nature of our character, not just character traits, not just be less angry, but to transform the nature of our character, which is like a wholesale change. It means to take the intellectual soul from always seeking to bring something to reduce it, right? To reduce it into something that makes sense to me. And instead, to allow it to soar up and say, instead of a mitzvah being something that makes sense to me, that this is why it exists, but I am going to allow my mind to wrap itself or to wrap itself around the fact that what makes a mitzvah valuable is simply because it's a divine command. In a relationship, it's the same thing. I can value what you want because it makes sense to me, or I can value what you want because you want it. Those are two different realities. I can value, you can want something, and I can say, oh, I value that. Why? Because I've now made sense of it, and now I understand why it makes sense. But then you know what? Then you know who you're really valuing? Yourself. And that was the only reason why your desire has values because I've come to understand how that makes sense to me. In other words, your value is still through my lens, like I said before. Whereas the second modality is I value what you want simply because you want it and I value you. Because you are valued, because I respect you and you want it, boom. So my attempt to make sense of it is actually on some level unhealthy unhealthy. Because when I try to make sense of it, it means I'm reducing your, I'm reducing you to fit inside my head. So intellect has nothing to do with, should not have anything to do with. It's always going to be naturally also figuring stuff out and making sense of it. But the point of this transformation, when we say chassidus is about, you know, mystical study is about Transforming the, nat- transforming the nature of our character. What that means is that the, that the intellectual soul stops trying to be so reductionary, stops trying to reduce things down to something that, I, that can fit in my small head. When I accept the fact that, you, that I will never fully understand you, whether it's another person or God, I will ne- because I, I can't, because... I'm not in your space. You know, it says in, in Pirkei Avod, Ethics of Our Fathers, don't judge someone until you've reached their place. Well, guess what? You can never reach their place fully. You know why? Because they're in that space. <laughs> the laws of physics, <laughs> two bodies cannot occupy the same space. We learned that in, I don't know, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade. Two bodies, physical bodies, cannot occupy the same exact space. They can be really close, but they can't occupy the same exact space, which means that I can never really know what's going on fully in someone else's head or mind. If I try to reduce what you want or what you need to something that makes sense to me, while seemingly honorable, right? It's coming from a good place. Like, I want to understand you. I want to make sense of it. It's, while seemingly honorable, 
the, 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 um, the collateral damage of that is that you become reduced to something in my own imagination, which means that if I can't wrap my head around it or it still doesn't make sense to me, then I may challenge you and say, that doesn't make sense. Why do you want it? As opposed to embracing the fact that you are an individual with individual wants and needs, an individual way of thinking about things, and I honor that and respect that, and you respect me. That's a healthy relationship. Healthy relationship is predicated less on love and more on respect. Love is important, obviously, but respect, but, you know, the song, is it a song? I don't know. Love is all you need. Is that a song? Love is all you need. Beatles. Yeah. If the Beatles said it, it has to be true. But my caveat is, love is not all you need. Oh, all you need is love. All you need is love. Right. Oh, see? Oh, look at that. We got it covered. What's love got to do with it? Boom. Oh, wow. This could be like a whole... This week, this week, Kabbalah, the musical. I see it now. We, if this were a musical, we would all break out into spontaneous, synchronized dance out of nowhere. But it's not, so we won't. But it could be, so we should, but we won't. But I'm very tempted. All right, back to the story. So if I reduce you to what I understand, that's not really honoring you. It's still in my own head. It's the same problem with the apology that was said before. It's still, and the same problem with the ego. It's still me getting in the way of fully embracing you as you are. Now, that's what the intellect, that's the work with the intellectual soul. So it's not about a specific area. It's about a general notion of don't try to shrink God to our own heads. Lift our minds up to God. Don't shrink God. Remember those shrinky dinks? Oh, I love those. Remember those shrinky dinks? You wrote, you colored on plastic, you put in the toaster oven, and it shrunk down. No. No. They're not edible. Why are they? That's gross. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I never thought of that. Yeah, maybe that's gross. Yeah, why would you put in your toaster? Yeah. All right. Maybe that explains a few things. Next, last paragraph. Last paragraph here. Conversely. So that's the work for the intellectual soul. Remember, the intellectual soul is always pulling down to make sense of things, to grab onto things. And here we're saying the work is to let go a little bit. Like, I don't need to understand everything. Allow the mystery. That's like keeping kosher or shatness or something. Well, right. So we seek to understand that, oh, kosher is valuable because I get it, because it makes sense. Whereas this would be, let that go. Let it allow our imaginations to rise up to God and to say, I, I, I acknowledge that your wisdom is greater than anything I could ever fathom. I don't need to reduce it to my understanding. I don't need to make, I don't need to give my own rational spin on it to make sense of it. I can, I can let go and, and envelop that. Now, what about the godly soul? The godly soul naturally trends upward. So what's the work on the character of the godly soul. Who would think we had to work on the godly soul? Right here. Conversely, the character of the godly soul naturally desires to depart its physical holding. We spoke about this in previous sessions. The body and to be absorbed in its source God. In other words, the godly soul, like a fire, is always seeking, is always moving upward. This character is transformed. The godly soul's character is transformed by directing it towards the service of God in the physical world within the confines of the body, in the confines of the body, Right down here. So the intellectual soul wants to make sense, wants to get it. I want to get it and understand it and, and hold on to it. And the work on the intellectual soul is letting it go, let it, letting go. The godly soul wants to let go, wants to disappear, wants to uh, unravel. And the work with the godly soul is to 
bring it down here and to, to, to instruct, to guide the godly soul to appreciate the work that's done, the transformation that's done right here in this space, in this physical space, in the physical world within the confines of the body, and to appreciate the work that's done in the here and now. Now this is an excerpt from a fantastic work called Hatamim. Um, but this, to me, this evokes a very powerful idea about personal change. We can change, on, we can work on ourselves on so many different levels. We can work on the details. We can, I've said this example a thousand times today, I'm going to say it again. We can work on our anger. We can work on our jealousy. We can work on our, what's the other one I've been saying? Judgment. Good. Don't judge me for forgetting. Right, so we can work on all these things. We can work on all the details. Or we can work on the bigger, on the bigger picture stuff. And the bigger picture stuff, what's the common denominator with, with what we just said? The intellectual soul is letting go. And stop, and stop reducing everything to rationale. And what about the godly soul? It's also letting go. Letting go of its natural desire. It, by nature, wants to flee, wants to, wants to escape. It naturally wants to, wants to bounce out of dodge. And, it's to, and, and the work with the godly soul is, no, is, this is valuable right here. To do a mitzvah here, to create transformation here, is super valuable. In other words, what the common denominator, they're moving in different directions. The intellectual soul we're trying to lift up and the godly soul we're trying to pull down internally. So then what's the common denominator? It's two different, two different efforts. It's the same effort. The effort for both is about letting go and not, not following the nature of the thing itself. The nature of the intellectual soul is to go down and we lift it up and we, 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 we inspire it to go up. The nature of the godly soul is to go up, we inspire it to go down. We're working on ourselves to go against, counter to our nature, recognizing that our nature is always going to be self-serving and because it's self-serving, it's not always going to be what God wants and where God wants it to be. Which brings us back to how we started. We can work on the individual areas that need work or we can recognize that at the core of it, is, I'm going to use a, maybe too strong of a term, is an obsession with self. That's at the core. At the core of all friction, wherever that friction is, is the ego. It's me getting in the way. It's me getting in the way of my relationship with God, my relationship with the other. That's what life comes down to, right? Relationships. What gets in the way of the relationships is always me. It's always my ego. And you could say, well, what if I'm open to relationship and the other person isn't? Conceptually, sure. That, that could happen. But in most cases, if we're in a relationship, and it's really in our relationship with God, the issue, the problem is not with the other party. The problem is, or at least the problem that we can address, is the one that is, with, that is closest to home, the one within ourselves. We can, we can work on the details. We can identify you know, a whole list, 20 areas, 10 points of, of, of work for this year. I'm going to work on this, five, three ideas that we're going to work on for this year. Right. These are three areas in which I want to improve. Great. But the real change happens. That's changing the natural character traits. But on a deeper level, the, the effort is about changing the nature of our character altogether. Instead of focusing on self, focusing on the other. Instead of focusing on what I need or what I want, it's focusing on what the other needs, what the other wants. This is where the true transformation happens. And I just want to circle back to what I said before. When we look back and we kick ourselves for doing certain things, 
right? And we look back and say, what was I thinking? How did I do that? It's always the same answer. What was I thinking? I wasn't thinking. <laughs> because in the moment, my instincts took over. Somebody mentioned instinct before, right? My instincts took over. Or I was swept away by the moment. All of that, what that really is saying is, is that in that moment, I was thinking more about myself or I was feeling myself more than I was feeling the other party or more than I was feeling the relationship. And that's what really causes the greatest friction. That's what really causes the greatest um, block in those connections. And so as we enter into a new week and as we very shortly get ready for the month of El, which is a month of introspection. The month of El is the month of introspection. Let's, uh, let's think about some of these themes and think about what is it within us that we can change to show up better for those around us, to be more, starting with more awareness of those around us, with more awareness and appreciation, gratitude, love, respect for those around us. And of course, for, for our source, for God Almighty. And when we think in those terms and we're more aware of it on a constant basis, we're less likely to do the things that we'll then have to apologize for later. Because who wants that? Who wants to do the thing and then come back and be like, ah, oh, I feel so bad I did that. We're not going to be perfect, right? That we established before. We're never going to be perfect. We're likely never going to be perfect. I mean, can't never say never, but we're likely not going to be perfect. However, what we can do is work on ourselves to work to this, this inner work. The inner work, again, just to recap, can take form in two spaces. One in the details, one at a more core space, at a more fundamental space. The effort of Hasidus and Kabbalah, mystical study, is to get us thinking about the deeper ideas, the deeper dynamics, and have that change start from within. And so, of course, I'll end with a joke with the guru that goes to the hot dog stand, over to the hot dog stand in New York City, that I've told many times, and you all know, we could all probably say the joke together in unison, but we won't. Or we could, like the musical. So, the guru goes over to the hot dog stand and says, make me one with everything. That's joke part A, right? Make me one with everything. Then, he hands him a 20. And the guy pockets it. And he says, where's the change? The hot dog stand guy says to the guru, Change comes from within. Good, good, good. We all know the joke. That's the only thing we've ever remembered from him. I know, right? <laughs> now they say that a rabbi giving sermons. So you can share a joke, because people remember jokes. You can, you can repeat the same joke like once every f- three years. You can repeat a story, a story people also remember, like once a year. A dvar Torah, like an insight. Like twice in the same sermon. No one one remembers that part. (laughs) No one remembers that part. Anyway, all right. So friends, change comes from within. Don't don't focus on the details as much as, as the core thing. That's what's really most important, and that's what the other will appreciate more. The other will appreciate the fact that you're thinking about them, and not that you're gonna Remember to take out the garbage next time. I don't know what the example is going to be. <laughs> now you're thinking there's garbage issues. There's <laughs> Everything's fine in the garbage department. But anyway, that's, uh, that's what's going on. All right, make sense? Yes? Yes. All right, a few quick announcements before we all go. Two things that are upcoming. There's, I don't know, there's like four things that are upcoming, but I feel like I want to focus on 
two major things. Number one, uh, I want to focus on all the things, but I'll focus on two things. We have, there, we are bringing out a Holocaust survivor on Monday, August 21st, which is, is that two weeks from tomorrow? Yeah. Two weeks from tomorrow night. Who's the Honey Girl? Yeah. The Honey Girl of Auschwitz. She will be here. How she got that nickname is part of her story. She was in Auschwitz. She encountered uh, Mengele, the uh, angel of death, the doctor that did horrific uh, um, torture to, to, to experiments and, and torture and, and abuse and murder. She was literally face-to-face with him on, 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 a, on a few occasions and literally miraculously escaped with her life. She survived a death march. Many people did not survive that. She, um, and she arrived in Auschwitz in the death camp, in the concentration camp, literally on her 16th birthday. She was born in May, on May 28, 19, wait, May 28, 1928. Does that make sense? She's 28? 95, 95, that would be 28? Yeah. She was born in a city, she, I spoke to her, born in the city of Solish. <laughs> in Hungary, yes. No, now it's Ukraine. Now it's called something else. I have it on my, I have it, I Googled it. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's called... Vinodaharadiv. V. What? Say it again. No, no, no. V Y N. Vin. O H R R. Vinor. Adiv. Vinor Adiv. That's easier when I break it down. Here, it's um, Hungarian, Romanian, Slovakian, and Ukrainian. Oh my gosh. It's been around. It's Solish. It's unbelievable. Spelled the same way? No, no, no. It's not spelled. No, it's not called Solish now. But it used to be called. Hold on. I, I it had it here. It even shows. Yeah, literally, Rabbi Ariville. No, it's um. <laughs> here, Yiddish, Solish. I'm not joking. Look at it. All right, let me let me break out this tab. For those who want to fact check me, well, you can come over. It's I, I'm literally making this all about me. After I said, don't let's not make things about ourselves. Unbelievable. How did this become about me? But take a look at the city that's named after me. Anyway, the, <laughs> the point is that this is happening on, um, on the 21st. Everybody's invited. It's really going to be a special event. Please come out. She's coming with her daughter. They, they, uh, you know, she, inter- she interviews her mom. It's very, very special, and it's happening at 7.30 p.m. There's also a pre-event for those that wish to join. Take a look at the website. You can also just, the easy link is the Torah Center ATL, a lot of letters, the Torah Center ATL.org slash honey girl. Boom. And you got it. Then one more thing that I'm announcing before I announce a few others is that in uh, about three weeks, we're doing a special Shabbat called Shabbat out of Africa. It's, a, it's an African themed Shabbaton, which means that the cuisine will be. Well, I mean South African. The cuisine will be South African themed. The yeah, little Brian Biltong and uh, we're 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 shoring up the menu this week, so I'll let you know. I don't know. I got I got the experts on it. I got the experts. So it's the twenty fifth and twenty sixth. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, maybe we'll. Yeah, so let's speak about that. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's a good, okay, yeah, that would be nice to, to put that together. So, 25th and 26th, my brother-in-law is coming in from London. Yuri. Yuri Cody. 
Yuri Cohen. Yeah, I'm like, oh. He told me he was coming, yes. So Yuri's coming. So my brother-in-law used to be for 15 years, maybe more, the, the chazan, the cantor, in, in one of the largest synagogues yeah, in Johannesburg. He's amazing. He's also my brother-in-law, which makes him even more amazing. No, but he's, he's really got a, tr- a phenomenal voice. And, he's go, and he's, he sings opera. He's, yeah. he's trained in opera and in you know, Jewish music. And it's, he's amazing. So he's going to be here for Shabbos. Friday night, we have a choir. We're putting together a men's choir to sing with him in synagogue. We're pulling out all the stops. He's going to sing Friday night and then Shabbat morning as well in synagogue. We're having a Friday night dinner. He'll be singing at the dinner and entertaining. He's hilarious. He's, uh, he's, he's a one-man show. And um, we have also a few um, scholars in residence that will be speaking. South African born and bred scholars in residence that will be speaking that Shabbat. It's very themed. Saturday night, musical Havdalah and Kumzitz, which means like a mu- musical get-together. So join us for that weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun. And that is also three weeks, exactly three weeks before the high holidays. So it's a good way to get inspired, you know, and kick off the high holiday season with good spirit. And I'm sure good spirits as well. All right, so that's that. Oh, and then there's also, of course, a Hebrew course and a Hebrew reading course and um, a business ethics course. But I said I would only mention two things. <laughs> and more to come. Sunday, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we're still here. Kabbalah, Kabbalah Cafe is, uh, is going strong. All right, once again, happy birthday, Dr. Maxi. It is great to see you. Great to celebrate together. Happy birthday. Pleasure, thank you. Mariana, great to see you. Ellen, Matt. Matt, I was just thinking about you yesterday and talking about you. We got some uh, um, yeshiva students that are coming to Kansas this week. I found that through the grapevine. So I'm thinking maybe we can um, have them make a stop and say hi. Do you know which city in Kansas? I'm assuming um, like Kansas or somewhere to open. No, they're going to... Um, Wichita? Maybe Wichita or what's another one? So, I mean, say... If they're going to Missouri, so be Kansas City, Wichita. No, it's a smaller one. All right, I'll have to figure it out. It's with Citrin. Citrin, you know the Citrins? So their son. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so their son, I'm speaking to the son, and he's like, oh, he has some friends that are going to Kansas. I'm like, well, that's crazy. Anyway, so I'm going to see if I can, If well, I have to double check where they're going, but that would be cool. Great to see you. Larry, great to see you. Mariana, as always. It is wonderful to have you here. Um, Tony, great to see you. Hope all is going great. Um, oh, we already got Ellen and Lisa. Wow, it's really great to have all of you here. And um, all right, wishing everybody Shavuot Tov. Have a great week and see you soon. Lots of blessings to everybody.